0: Hello. Welcome again to the podcast about the history of the movies, because this is Matinees on Main Street, and my name is Alan. Lately, our episodes have been attempting to emphasize change, but I don't know how well that's understood. Even the film history books fail to explain how much things have changed. Your standard history of an industry usually starts, as this one did, with developers and businessmen making money. The history of the automobile industry, which started up at around the same time as the film industry, tells that kind of story. One about developers, and then men who built cars privately, followed by the men with investors who branched out the industry, until people like Henry Ford turned those cars into a national and then an international obsession. But during that time, it was always about the automobile and how it slowly improved. The movie started that way. It was about the infighting over projector and camera patents, as well as profits. It was about the machines, and in order to expand this business, you needed to sell a lot of machines. But then the movies slowly took over. This change in interest towards the movies didn't happen because the movies were necessary to sell the machines, although they were, but because the public started to develop a fascination with the movies themselves. Another parallel to this can be found in the record player, although the record-playing market wouldn't become obsessed over simply buying records for some time. Not until the appearance of singers like Frank Sinatra or Perry Como or Elvis Presley would you start to see a fixation on music that developed in the same way that an obsession with movies developed in the first decade of the 20th century. That may explain why Edison didn't see any of this coming. Despite his production manager, William Gilmore, showing some concern about the profits in movies themselves, Edison could look back at his days with the phonograph and see that while they were certainly profitable, it was not profitable enough to concern yourself with the business. People were not lining up outside of phonograph parlors in order to buy records. Music and comic records sold fairly well for what they were, but despite the popularity of those records, the recording artists had reputations as vaudeville performers or stars in opera houses, rather than being known for making records. It's been said that the opera star Enrico Caruso helped launch the sale of records and made good money from them, but until his death Caruso was thought of as an opera star and not a recording star. So why would anyone think any differently about the movies? As an example, take a look at the reputations of Annabelle or Loewe Fuller. They both starred in early films, but the public never really thought of them in terms of movie stars. They were dancers. The first years of the movies proved to be no different in its marketing arc than was the recording market. At the time, you could buy records that featured people who were simply laughing, telling rude jokes, reciting dialogue from classic plays, or playing instruments, and these were not much different from some of the films that were appearing at the time. The change in the perception of the movies seemed to have first appeared with the flood of Spanish-American war films that were exhibited in America at the end of the 19th century. Was this growing cultural acceptance of the movies simply another part of the jingoistic fever that swept America at that time? I really don't know, but by 1907 that fever had quickly turned into a cultural pandemic and it was sweeping America. Everything in the industry had been changing in this direction since about 1904. The appearance of the movie rental service didn't happen because a handful of people believed that there was money to be made in renting movie projectors. Instead, it was due to the public's growing desire to see movies, and the growing number of people willing to show those movies for money, no matter how short or simple they were. It wasn't those retail optical shops selling movie cameras that were making all the money. It was the theaters showing movies. And no matter how many theaters popped up in any given area, there were still people lining up to see those films, and more people waiting to open more theaters. Obviously, it was the money being made that was attracting all these people willing to invest in a movie theater. But it was the willingness of the public to spend so much money on movies that was behind it all. For a good portion of the public in America, Europe, Australia, Japan, and other places, the movies were an attraction. But in America, there were people who were willing to do just about anything to make money. And as the movies were turning into a massive craze, a craze that was bordering on an addiction for some it was looking like a great way to make money. This attraction to see movies was nowhere as bad as, say, the abuse of alcohol or its consequences. Still, for a nickel, people could lose themselves all day in any theater that allowed its customers to stay seated if they wanted. By 1908, they even had an illness called filmitis. But with this raging interest in the movies, it wouldn't be long before these audiences would develop a fixation on the people who appeared in them. This rage was also worrying people concerned over the effect that these movies would have on the minds of the American public. As for the industry, it had to realign itself with this new focus on movies, and it was having a hard time doing so. These were men who made and sold machines, so producing what was basically a creative product was rather alien to them. After all, book publishers didn't write books. Writers did. But in this case, these mechanics were forced to be creative and then sell what they had struggled to create. By the beginning of 1908, the press was well aware of what was going on. They were watching the craze, the people who were swept up in it, as well as the people concerned. The movies were not without sin in their eyes, but they also knew you could not condemn the entire industry just because some theater owners were reckless in their choice of movies they exhibited or were careless about who they allowed into their theaters. A great majority of the people attending the movies were people who had never witnessed a professional theatrical performance. Many of them could not afford the price of admission to a theatrical house or simply lived in the places that rarely saw traveling theater. Not knowing the English language was another barrier to theater. The movies had become the cultural window for immigrants. Interestingly, in cities like New York and Chicago, which actually had ethnic theaters, the movies were starting to affect their attendance numbers, even without the problem of language. The movies were becoming something much greater than simply a replacement for theater. Even Broadway's most important producers were aware of this. By 1908, the movies represented a threat to their very survival, and if that was not enough, issues over copyrights and royalties were brought before the makers of the movies. It seemed as if all of this erupted overnight. The back alley novelty had suddenly become the most powerful new force in entertainment, and it challenged everything around it. And then there was the issue about children attending theaters. Working mothers, Mothers living in working-class neighborhoods and those in even lower economic neighborhoods tended to use the movie house as a babysitter, regardless of what their children saw. It was estimated that about one-third of the movie-attending public was children, and it was to them that the voices of worry were addressed, especially as the movies featured a number of crime films. While crime shown as simply the catalyst for a morality play was not considered terribly damaging, films like The Great Train Robbery or The Kleptomaniac, which showed the steps taken in a robbery, was cause for concern with children. So was a movie like The Moon Lover, which showed a hilariously drunken man, or movies that inspired children to perform dangerous pranks. At the beginning of 1905, there had been no Nickelodeons, meaning theaters that exhibited movies exclusively. By early 1908, it was estimated that a 1,000 movie theaters existed in New York City alone, with at least another 500 in the Chicago area, with a total of around 8,000 nationwide. It didn't cost that much to start a Nickelodeon, but it cost a lot more to run a first-class theater. Interestingly, as most cities charged upwards of around $200 for a license to entertain a crowd of 200 or more people, the vast majority of Nickelodeon operators avoided this cost by limiting attendance in their establishments to 199 people at a time. The average Nickelodeon needed at least 4,000 admissions per week. That's 571 people a day for a 7-day work week. Approximately 670 if your town or city had a blue law against the Sunday entertainments. Still, with most Nickelodeons running at least 10 shows a day, you only needed an average of 111 people to attend any one of your shows over the course of a day for 6 days to break even. The rest of it was pure profit coming from the lines of people appearing at your ticket booth. Another way to look at it was that between the large amount of Nickelodeons now appearing in America and the less popular high end movie theaters, the average cost of admission at that time was six cents, with well over a billion admissions per year. One billion 83,333,333 admissions, to be specific. That's about 2.9 million per day. While well, film historian Wanda Kraft gave the number at just 2 million per day. This means about $65 million was spent getting into the movie houses by 1908. It took about an average of 10 people to run a movie theater, which meant that roughly 80,000 people were employed in the Nickelodeons and movie houses. There were also roughly about 150 film rental exchanges in the country at the time, with an average employment of about 25 people per business, adding another 3,700 people to the total, along with about another 5,000 working in the film production companies. This means that roughly 89,000 people were working in the movie business, and that's in 1908. And with many theaters reporting long lines, the attendance was obviously much higher than anyone could grasp. It was those lines as well as the emotional intensity of those attending that grabbed people's attention more than anything else. And what the American public saw was money. Also being reported for the first time were people running away from home to work in the movies. A farmer in Kansas reported that he discovered his missing wife while watching a movie. She had taken off on him five years earlier, looking for excitement in her life, and he couldn't find her. Apparently, she had a small inheritance waiting for her back in Kansas. The theater put him in touch with Lubin, where she was working as an actress. These kinds of stories would grow more regular over the next 20 years. Another sign of the growing movie mania was that the vaudeville houses were starting to convert to movie theaters. In the Northeast, several of the Keith theaters dropped vaudeville and became movie houses. Garrick's in St. Louis did so, as did the Lyric in Cleveland, the Orpheum in Chicago, and even the Hippodrome in Paris. Vaudeville was no longer the step parent of the moving picture. The movies had grown up to be the motion picture, and it was now calling the shots. The Garrick situation is kind of interesting. The Garrick was St. Louis's opera house. Opera and theater, and to a lesser extent, vaudeville, all tend to slow down in the summer. In other words, at that time, America's public indoor entertainment tended to follow the school year. Traditionally, this had to do with the heat of summer, as well as the need for farm help in America's small towns and countryside. Obviously, in a city like New York or Chicago or St. Louis, it was the heat that was the biggest factor as many theater stars left their homes for vacation spots in order to keep cool. Another faction in the theater, who were a little less fortunate or more restless, left to tour America on summer road shows of the big Broadway plays. America's big-time opera houses were becoming full-time movie houses by switching to the movies due to their popularity and affordability. But when the Garrick did so... Major Broadway producers, such as David Belasco, screamed bloody murder. Belasco had two major plays on Broadway at the time, The Girl of the Golden West, which played the 1905-6 season at his theater, and Rose of the Rancho, which played the Belasco in the 6-7 season. Both plays continued to be hits, running as road shows and reappearing on Broadway since that time. The Girl of the Golden West, which starred Blanche Bates, was so impressive that Italian composer Giacomo Puccini made it into an opera. This was nothing new, as Puccini had done the same for Belasco's Madame Butterfly. The lead in Rose of the Rancho, the newer of the two plays, was Frances Starr. Despite Belasco's anger over having his two plays canceled in St. Louis, these three, Madame Butterfly... Rose of the Rancho and Girl of the Golden West would all play significant roles in the beginning of the feature film era. At this time, which was early 1908, Belaska was developing his latest play, Warrens of Virginia. It was written by William DeMille, the more successful son of minister and playwright Henry DeMille and his wife Beatrice. It was at this time that he interviewed who was to be his latest acting protégé, Gladys Smith, whom he renamed Mary Pickford. Mary would appear in the movie Madame Butterfly in the mid-1910s, and Henry's brother Cecil would direct both Rose of the Rancho and Girl of the Golden West as movies at about the same time. Obviously, Belasco would soon understand that if you can't beat them, join them. By 1908, movies were just about everywhere a person could be. They were in vaudeville houses, theaters, Nickelodeons, rat trap buildings in the inner city, civic centers, opera houses, churches, school events, classrooms, picnics, amusement parks, ice skating rinks and roller rinks, on the side of downtown buildings, basements, attics, hunting lodges, benevolent societies, women's clubs, meeting houses, charitable events, world's fairs, tourist traps, department stores, bowling alleys, and other places. If there was an excuse to be found to run the movies, it was certainly discovered. There were so many theaters in America that a division was forming between the haves and have-nots concerning exhibition. The question was raised in 1908 whether the cheaper movie theater market should be allowed to exist. It was not that long ago, maybe only a year earlier, when the movies were seen as the entertainment salvation of the immigrants and the poor. But one by one, issues arose. Some of them were legitimate, but others seemed to hint at a kind of backhanded conservative classism. This attitude lacked the do-gooder's sense of humanity towards the poor, and it reeked of Ebenezer Scrooge's remarks about workhouses. This classism came about so fast that it seemed to make people's heads spin. This reactionary view came about just as the Edison company attempted to organize a trust. The trust was really a signal that the amount of money flooding into the movie industry was way beyond what anyone conceived. And yet it was packaged as an attempt to keep the industry on the straight and narrow. In an article in Moving Picture World, an unnamed source said that the growth of the industry had been so rapid and so immense that it was almost too hard to fathom. Whatever state the industry would be in today would certainly be different tomorrow. The changes, the growth, and the expansion were so rapid that it was impossible to control it. And yet that was what the Patent Trust was attempting to do. In its complaints about subpar quality in the films the questionable theaters in the poorer sections of the big cities, and the rather loose rental rules of some of the film rental services. It seemed that the trust, as well as the classists, were grasping at straws as they attempted to pin the problems on people exploiting the poor. It was simply a grasp of desperation. As for the public itself, it was probably the lower middle class more than any other group that was supporting the movies, as well as some members of the upper middle class. These were the people who had experienced them in the vaudeville houses, and they brought their knowledge of the movies to the Nickelodeons. It was for these people that the movies were made. The lower class got the hand-me-downs while much of the upper-middle class, as well as those above them, had been ignoring the movies until quite recently. After all, they had other options. But the mania for movies was starting to expand within the parts of the upper-middle class that had originally rejected the movie's anarchic feel. These were the people who wanted to embrace the movies on their terms, which required improving the product and using it for the bettering of others, including the children and the poor. And now that they were interested in the game, they wanted the rules changed and tilted in their direction. The reason the film companies started to drift in that direction had to do with the financial potential of this class of people. This was an audience that supported operas, churches, schools, museums, consumerism, philanthropy, and other pillars of society. They were not the upper-class wealthy, but simply well-off, middle-class Americans, who may not be able to financially build an opera house on their own, but they did attend operas and theater and heavily shop in a way that the lower middle class could only do on occasion. They had their own culture, and in order for the movies to win that audience, the movie companies had to learn how to make the kind of movies this class of people wanted to see. At first, it was simply the Pathé films. It was recognized by many that at that time, Pathé made the classiest movies, although much of that had more to do with the style of the films than the movies themselves. The Pathé films generally did not aim for the lower market in the way that the Edison or Biograph films occasionally did. For example, while Edison comedies could be rude or charming, they usually were aimed at the same broad class of people that Edison himself came from. But when Max Linder became Pathé's starring comedian, he brought class to his films in a way that no one else did. There was nothing truly vaudevillian in a Pathé film. They were closer to theater in taste and in temperament, no matter what the subject was. In America, Calum, which had started in early 1907, started to pursue this idea. George Klein, who was one of three men involved in the founding of the company, was probably the real visionary in pursuing the idea of movies for the upper middle class and for raising the movies themselves into the realm of theater. Although he quit Calum over Edison's policy of restricting foreign films, the company continued to pursue that idea. Right behind Calum was Vitagraph Company of America, who was also interested in making films based on novels, plays, and historical events. Between these two companies, the seeds were planted. Not only to encourage a higher class of people to attend the movies, but to raise the movies out of the Nickelodeons and into theaters, and eventually to create a new form of movie that would later be referred to as the feature film. But all of this is in the near future. In 1908, it was just enough that the movie companies were starting to entice this higher class of audience to consider the movies as an option to the theater, opera, the symphony, and other highbrow entertainment. At this time, the movies were still primarily about entertaining the middle and lower classes and providing them with comedies, action films, or occasionally a melodrama. But there were still concerns that had to be addressed. Obviously, for the well-to-do, that was the condition of the Nickelodeons, as much as it was the films themselves. Successful people were not going to crowd themselves into small movie houses packed with the lower classes. For some of these people, exclusion was the approach, not inclusion. Being able to barricade oneself against the hoi polloi was just as important as was the quality of the film. Another issue that kept cropping up was the fear of fires within a theater, Back in 1897, when Paris experienced their charity Bizarre Tragedy, America noticed the story for a few days and quickly forgot about it. When the Iroquois Theater burned down in Chicago about four years later, it was brushed off as a theater fire, not a movie fire. And besides, much of that tragedy was caused by panic. Now, with the theaters multiplying like rabbits, there was a reversal of attitude towards theater fires. Ironically, this was again caused by a theater fire, one in Boyertown, Pennsylvania. The irony was that a rumor started that a film projector caused the fire, even though none was in use during the play's performance. Boyertown News stalked the trade magazines in the early part of 1908, and it suddenly became obvious with so much attention being paid to the movies that maybe cities and towns should look more carefully into the conditions of the theaters where the movies were being projected. Another concern, one that was rather frivolous, was the sudden identification of a new disease which one unnamed doctor referred to as eye scobitis. In a nutshell, it was an eye stress disorder caused by the flickering of the movies. It was suggested that the cause of this was too much movie watching, especially those who tended to stay for repeat performances or who traveled from theater to theater within the entertainment districts. It was pointed out in Moving Picture World magazine that it was very possible that the doctor who announced this disease may have been the same doctor who had recently been elected to the vice presidency of the Actors National Protective Union, basically one of the theater actors unions. Like the Broadway producers, the Actors Union was also voicing concern over the sudden mania over movies. Success breeds fear. In Pittsburgh, a man stood up during a film that showed a woman out west being harassed by a ruthless cowboy. This man in the audience fired five shots at the screen in order to protect this projected image of a lady. After a panic was started, the police intervened, and the rather drunken savior of this image of a woman declared, "'It was a shame to let those men ill-treat a woman.'" The success of the movies was also being blamed for the failure of two completely separate forms of business, the music publishing business and the saloons. It was claimed that the movies were causing a decline in public drinking, something the temperance people were promoting with joy, even though some of those same people were complaining about movie characters drinking in the movies. The men who were abandoning the taverns were not the habitual drinkers, but the men who liked to be out in the evening among people, enjoying themselves. These men now took their families or girlfriends to the cinema and sat with a crowd happily watching movies. At least, that is what the temperance people claimed. It was probably at least partially true. As for the music business, at the time... Song plugging was the way to introduce a song to the public's heart. In the early 21st century, popular songs come from apps like TikTok. Previously, the same could be said about dance clubs, and before that, in the late 20th century, they came from Top 40 Radio, which played the songs to death, and later MTV. But in the time we're now talking about in this podcast, songs were plugged in public. A lucky song, like After the Ball, could become famous when it was attached to a popular play. But most of them were plugged by song pluggers, pounding out songs on pianos in music stores, department stores, amusement parks, beer gardens, and the like. At this stage of the game, the movie theaters generally showed illustrated songs between movies. The pianists played the song, and the audiences sang along. Unfortunately, the crowds wanted their songs changed as often as their movies. This made it impossible to establish a song in the minds of the public. Of course, all it would take is some smart publisher to slip extra money to the pianist or even the theater manager to consistently play one song for a week at some successful movie theater in New York City to get the ball rolling on his hit song. So now, the movies were supporting the song industry, scaring the wealthy, damaging the tavern industry, thrilling much of the middle class and providing complete entertainment to the lower class. The do-gooders were eyeing its success and thinking how they could use those movies to further their aims. Almost overnight, this successful business market had exploded beyond belief, leaving many within the industry shaking their heads in marvel and wondering when it was all going to burst. Novelties don't last forever, and this one had had a good run of 10 years with no sign of stopping. As one man pointed out a year later, fads had been about bicycles and ping pong, and by 1908, no one was riding bicycles or playing ping pong. In that time, the automobile had risen up from its novelty status as a rich man's eccentric play toy to become a fashionable, although very expensive, status symbol of the rich. And now, in 1908, if that wasn't enough, word was suddenly leaking out that two brothers had been secretly flying a machine for the past four years in the Ohio countryside and along the barrier islands of North Carolina. This had been their little secret until the New York press finally caught wind of it. Now that Orville and Wilbur Wright were now going to be celebrities, was there anything that couldn't be done? If, or more likely, when man starts to fly, would that be the novelty that kills the interest in the movies? But for now, 1908 is the year that the movies truly become a sensation. For the industry, that would be good enough. The world was now experiencing movies, and the American public had gone mad for them. But it's not all peaches and cream. The theaters and the movies were now open to criticism. For the Nickelodeons, these were issues that just seemed to get worse. Thanks for listening, and take care of yourself.